David College, Beavis Falls, Pennsylvania, Monday afternoon, October 11, 1971. Bible 324, Biblical Archaeology. Continuing the study of Unger's book, Archaeology and the Old Testament, and dealing with the religion and philosophy of the ancient Canaanites. Now, if we should take up Dr. Unger's book from 142 to 152. Is that right today? 153 to 166. I did study. Don't think I came across without studying. I just put this up on the page number. This is um, on the law code. The religion of Canada has to come up next time. The religion, the, the Mosaic and other ancient law codes, including Hammurabi. And questions in the syllabus from 260. Now, before we go into that, any of you got questions on last time's material or anything before that? I'll clear it up. Now, Mr. Nair, you bring it up. 255. And 256. 257. All right, 255. How can the argument about um, Exodus 1.11 be answered? This uh, verse in Exodus states that the Israelites built a um, store city. This is grain uh, storage depots. Uh, Ramesses and uh, another place that is mentioned there. Let's see. Uh, that's the real name of the other one. Exodus 111. Python and Ramses. R-A-A-M-S-E-S. Now this is urged as an argument against the early date of the Exodus on the ground that uh, if this door that he was named, one of these was named Ramses, it must have been built by the Pharaoh Ramses the second who uh, lived in the 1200s or towards that time, 100 to 150 years later than the early date of the Exodus. Because the city is named after Ramesses, therefore it must have been built by this pharaoh who lived later. And how does Unger answer that and other believers in the biblical chronology? Um, this fellow Ramesses II was... Um, not very conscientious and was famous for taking credit for the actions of his predecessors. Previous pharaohs built something and he came on the scene and became the king of Egypt and left plaster all over their names and insignia and wrote his stuff up instead. And this was a fairly common practice, I guess, but this has been proved on him. And there's the plaster and there's the older name on some places. Now, this place, uh, Ramesses, the store city, has not been excavated or found yet, just like it's described here, but it is perfectly possible that this place and the other one, too, were built in the time when the Israelites were being oppressed to before the Exodus and had some other name. And later on, this man, Ramesses, much later, perhaps rebuilt them or at any rate took them over and maybe added something to them and then named his own name on them and claimed the whole business for himself. Don't think for a minute that this would have bothered his conscience or caused him to lose sleep. Uh, he wouldn't. So this is the answer to that. Uh, and this name, Ramses, in Exodus 111, would be one of these quite numerous examples of a later place name being put in 
uh, so that readers of the book would know what place the thing meant. In some places it gives both names earlier in the letter, and here this would be a case of giving the letter name only. And that's one. The other one that she has, 257, how can we answer the objection that the identification of the biblical Hebrews with the Habiru of the Amarna letters is unlikely? The Amarna letters, this was a storehouse of um, copies of diplomatic correspondence found at a place in Egypt called Tel Amarna. And um, uh, these uh, from various different dates in there, some of them from in the 1300s. The Amarna letters, letters between the king of Egypt and the Hittites and the king of Egypt and his his vassals in different places and so forth, and sort of the Pentagon Papers of ancient Egypt. And these were discovered, and a great deal of information was gained from them. Now, they mention a people called the Habiru, and uh, these are mentioned other places, too. And among these things was a frantic call for help from the king of Jerusalem to his overlord, the Pharaoh of Egypt, S.O.S. Hurry up, get here with the maid, the Habiru are about to destroy it. And the uh, assumption has been made that the Habiru are um, the same as the Hebrews under Moses and Joshua. Now this is doubtful and is argued, it's extremely debatable, it is argued pro and con by people that know more than all of us put together about this. And it's very difficult to base an argument on something that is unproven like that. It's hypothetical that the Habiru either included the Hebrews or were the Hebrews. This is, this is uh, an unestablished fact. And um, to say that the, uh, the under holds that the Habiru were identical with the Hebrews, this fits his argument very nicely. And critics of that say it's unlikely. Well, um, I wouldn't say it's unlikely. I'd say it's unproven. Maybe... Likely or unlikely, but uh, what's unlikely is still up in the air. And so um, they say that, um, you see, the, the minor letters are later than the time of Moses. And they're later than the time of Joshua, if you hold the early chronology, from the 1300s. So if the king of Jerusalem is hollering SOS to Egypt, get here in a hurry and help us. If you don't get here right away, well, it's going to be too late. This represents, if you hold that the Habiru were the Israelites, this represents the attack of the Israelites on Canaan and Jerusalem as coming in the 1300s or down towards the end of the 1300s and therefore favors the late chronology. Now, in answer to that, Unger also says that um, uh, the uh, minor letters only represent Jerusalem as in danger of being captured. They do not say that the Israelites captured it. And uh, there is no way to this either. The Amarna letters only say that it was in danger of being captured. As a matter of fact, the Israelites did not really capture Jerusalem until the time of King David, hundreds of years later. They got part of it and then lost it again in Joshua's death. And Jerusalem remained under the control of a... Uh, Warlike tribe, the Jebusites, until about the year 1000, when, when King David succeeded in getting it and made it his national capital. 
Now, this whole argument, one way or the other, about the Hebrew is based upon an unproved assumption that the Hebrew are identical with the Hebrews. And if this hasn't been proved, the chain is no stronger than its weakest link, and therefore the whole thing has proved nothing one way or the other. All right, does that help any on that? Okay, anybody else got one before we go further? All right, now then, um, the uh, part on the law code, this is from question 260 now, and the uh, number of uh, questions here of, of a technical nature, the Sinai Peninsula, who holds this today? What country has charge of this today? Mr. Harris, Israel. They won this in a lightning stroke in 1967. You know, it took the Israelites 40 years to get across this. Well, they got delayed from a long way. And the armies of the Republic of Israel did it in uh, less than one week in 1967 with motorized equipment, of course, uh, not depending on walking on foot or on camels. Sinai Peninsula, a triangle, 260 miles from north to south and uh, 150 from uh, miles wide at the north. And the uh, rugged mountains, some of them 8,000 feet high. Now, most any Bible map that you see will give the route of the Exodus, that is, the route of Israel across the Sinai Peninsula as a dotted line. Why would this be? Why would they make it a dotted line, not a solid line? Yeah, even the Jews at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem can't agree as to the route of the Exodus across Sinai. So uh, there's three different uh, opinions about it. Now, the most probable of those is that uh, at Mount Sinai, the Mount Sinai of the Bible, where the Ten Commandments were given, and where Israel camped for nearly a year, and a uh, covenant with, uh, then was made between them and God, and many laws given, and they were organized as a nation there, that this is um, way down in the southern part, near the apex of the triangle. And there is a big and very rugged mountain there, which is uh, traditionally Mount Sinai a monastery of the Greek Orthodox Church, the monastery of St. Catherine. They only have about two dozen monks there now. Formerly, in former years, they had many more. Um, one of the famous manuscripts of the New Testament, Codex Sinaiticus, one of the three most important Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, was discovered there about a hundred years ago. Now, that's the traditional location of Mount Sinai, but there's a couple of others that are runners up in the contest to be honored as Mount Sinai, and so this has not been absolutely determined. And until this can be determined, the root of the Exodus, you have to say, has not been absolutely proved. Now, pick up Hammurabi, the law code of Hammurabi. It used to be held that Hammurabi was a contemporary of Abraham. Mr. Brown, you know why people held that? Well, this was considered a real point of fundamentalism to hold that Hammurabi was a contemporary of Abraham. It's pretty well shot today, though. And uh, Mr. James, you know why? Well, this, this, uh, this was held even before the law code was discovered. The name Hammurabi was supposed to be a different spelling of Amraphel in Genesis 14. One of the Amraphel king of Shinar one of those four leading kings that uh, headed up at Sodom and Gomorrah. And Amraphel 
vaguely similar to Hammurabi. This is not, not, I wouldn't say very close. But although widely held at one time among people who believed in the Bible, this has been pretty well proved to be not only false but impossible. The uh, uh, Semitic name is made up of consonants. You just fill the vowels in. And the consonants in Hammurabi are not the same as those in Amethel, and therefore it couldn't be a variant of the same name. So we'll have to let that go. And uh, it's now known that since the discovery of this uh, code of laws on this big black uh, steel or uh, pillar, that uh, Hammurabi was um, in the 1700s, and not a contemporary of Abraham, but approximately a contemporary of Abraham's grandson, uh, great-grandson Joseph, in the 1700s in Egypt. Now, this law code uh, of Hammurabi, the date of it, um, approximately 1700 B.C. I have a book here from England, uh, documents from Old Testament times, B. Wenton Thomas. He gives Hammurabi's dates of 1792 to 1750 B.C. There's also a picture here that I'll pass around. I'd like to get the book back and read you a little piece from some of these laws. I wonder, how would you like to um, practice medicine if you were a doctor under Hammurabi's code? <laughs> no soap, huh? No soap. All right. If the doctor operated, and they did, you know, they even operated on the brain. People have been found with their skulls and then and they cut out a little round section of figures that silver dollar to, uh, you know, let off pressure, or maybe something like that in the brain, above the brain. And these people have not recovered, if some of them did. Personally, I prefer not to be uh, operated on by a Babylonian surgeon. But um, uh, the doctor operated and the patient died, they cut off the right hand of the doctor, according to Hammurabi's code. And if he did it again and the patient died, cut off his left hand. This is, uh, I would say, drastic. Now, this is a picture of him. This is from the top of this thing. All right, and that's the very top of this this code of laws um, discovered at a um, place far away from Babylonia, what is today part of Iran or Persia. An Elamite king had, had stolen it, and it was discovered, I believe, about... Um, when was it, 18, uh, 1905 or something like that, uh, not too terribly long ago. And um, this, um, this was, is today, I believe, in the British Museum. Anyway, a big black smooth stone that is between seven and eight feet high, and six feet in circumference. It's such a string around it at the base. It tapers and gets narrowly towards the top. And at the very top, this relief sculpture showing uh, Hammurabi getting into this coat of laws from Shamash the sun god. This is the only religious thing about it. He uh, pays his uh, dignified respects to the sun god and then turns secular immediately afterwards. This is one of the major differences from the law codes of Moses. And this, this code contains about 300 paragraphs of uh, legal material, uh, 282 laws. Part of them are damaged and cannot be read very well. 
but the 248 are sufficiently well preserved to be read. Now, one interesting thing that has been um, stated recently, it's not in your book, though, about Hamilton law code is that this was never the working law code of any country. Hunger doesn't say that, does he? I don't think so. Never the working law code of any country, that there's no record any time, anywhere, of this law being put in practice or applied or uh, enforced on anybody or any of the penalties uh, being exacted on anyone. This was an ideal uh, sort of a production, something like Plato's Republic or Thomas More's Utopia, sort of a... Uh, literary production setting out what Hammurabi thought would be an ideal code of law, but apparently never was actually the practicing working law code of Babylon or any other place. And uh, it uh, is very probable, of course, that many of these laws existed before Hammurabi's time and were uh, sort of a common law that was commonly recognized, and that he, he accordingly put them into this code. But the Code of Hammurabi as such was an ideal production like Plato's Republic. It was not the actual law code of Babylon or any other place. Now, the discovery of Hammurabi's law code did one good thing for believers in the Bible. Question 269. Well, um, 268. Uh, Hammurabi's law code is at least um, 300 years before the time of Moses. Now, the uh, critical theory that used to be alleged 100 years ago, 75 years ago, or a little more, was that Moses could not be the human author of the law codes in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy because this was too long ago for there to be any law codes. Now, please note, this was based upon an assumed a priori evolutionary construction of history. People gradually developed, you see, from um, being very crude and simple-minded and primitive, uh, gradually developed and got to more complex concepts and more developed institutions, and finally evolved far enough that they could have law codes. And the theory is, has to be slowly, of course. And the theory, therefore, is that this Moses, he lived in the 1200s or the 1400s B.C., according as you take it, that this long ago there weren't any law codes. Therefore, Moses could not have been the, the writer, or uh, by God's instruction, the human intermediary of the law code in the Pentateuch, in the Bible. Now, Hammurabi's law code is of no particular use to us in itself, but it has knocked this objection of the Bible into a cocked hat. Nobody can say that anymore, because here's Hammurabi's law code, anyhow, 300 years older than, uh, than the law codes of Moses, Therefore, people did too have law codes, as long as there was that. Furthermore, Hammurabi's is not even the earliest known law code. Two others have been discovered, not so long as his, and not so complete, but they're older. So um, nobody will bring this one up anymore. You see, archaeology doesn't convert people. It takes um, the Holy Spirit and Billy Graham and so forth to get this done, but especially the Holy Spirit. But... Uh, on the other hand, archaeology does perform a service by turning some of these people off and shutting them up so they can't uh, all make these sweeping and uh, radical charges against the Bible that are often upsetting to people that haven't studied into it for themselves very much. And this is one thing that nobody would knows anything would bring up anymore, that there couldn't have been a law code as long ago as the time of Moses. There could too, and there's been several of them discovered. 
Now, uh, uh, there has been a, uh, another theory, and you'll find this in some more recent books, 270-271, that uh, the laws of Moses are plagiarized or derived, borrowed, cribbed from the law code of Hammurabi. Uh, this intended to discredit the divine origin of the laws of Moses, which ought to be called the laws of God given through Moses. Moses didn't mean these up. He was merely the human instrument. But uh, you see, if Moses cribbed them out of the laws of Hammurabi, then he didn't get them from God. That's the point here. Now, this, this requires an answer. How are you going to answer that when somebody says these laws of Moses, Ten Commandments, and all the rest of this... This is just a piece of literary plagiarism from the laws of Hammurabi. What would you say if somebody said that to you? Mr. Dennison, uh, if you'd meet somebody in a dark alley and they'd say the laws of Moses are fit from Hammurabi, what would you say? I'd say beans, but what would you say? What can I think of the moral Yeah. Now look, you would do well to start out by admitting there are similarities. They aren't completely different. There are similarities. And there are also differences. And you'd have to account both for the similarities and for the differences to show the true relation or lack of relation. Now the Babylonians were Semitic people. They were distantly related, therefore, to the Hebrews. And if you go far enough back, they would have been identical at some point in the Neolithic period before the people branched. Not too closely related in the historic period, though. But um, part of their, let's say, ancient heritage of the tradition would be the same. So uh, the same kind of things happen in every country. Every country where people have sinful hearts, they're likely to steal sometimes. So you would have some laws against stealing. And um, the kinship of the peoples and the general uh, cultural background being partly similar would explain some of the similarities between these laws. The same kind of conditions produce the same kind of events which require the same kind of legal treatment in different countries. So this would account for part of it. On the other hand, uh, the differences are quite... Uh, Striking. Well, first of all, on the on the similarities, here in um, 272, how can these be accounted for? I'll read you my own note on this. People living in somewhat similar conditions, related racially and culturally, will naturally have some similar features in their laws. Uh, 273, what type of Israelite laws should we expect to find paralleled among Israel's antecedents and neighbors in the Near East? And in the answer to this, Unger says, civil laws of customary origin. Now, you see, when God prescribed some of these, let's say in the book of Exodus or the book of Leviticus or Deuteronomy, this does not mean that the laws in the Code of Moses were previously unknown. It is quite possible and even likely that many of these dealing with everyday matters, let's say uh, damages for property injured or something like this, existed before as a matter of custom or common law, and now God, by inspiration, uh, puts this into his scripture, and it becomes a law, let's say, um, 
recorded with the authority of God. But this does not prove that, you see, when we say Moses got these laws from God, and that Moses wrote it as we have it, this doesn't mean it's just got right out of the blue sky by parachute and was previously unknown. It means that Moses imposed these on Israel with the authority of God, some of these having been customary before. Um, Ruth, the Moabites, went to glean in the fields of Boaz to glean barley. Now, this was a law in Israel. The poor and needy and underprivileged had a right to glean in the field. This was a statute law. It was a right, form of social security. In Moab, this was apparently only a custom, but Ruth knew about it. What in Moab was a custom, and would have been a custom in Israel, God made it a law, you see, so that it had a customary background before it was legislated into a law. Now, uh, one example is the law of um, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. People have objected to this in the law of Moses. This is very barbarous. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And let me tell you, they completely missed the point. The point of this law is um, if somebody knocks out one of your teeth, you may knock out one of his, but you may not knock his block off or knock out all his teeth, just one tooth for one tooth. And this was to restrain wholesale vengeance. Uh, if there weren't some restraint like this, somebody knocked one tooth out, or I could knock out all his teeth in order to get even. So this was to, this was to put a restraint on it rather than to uh, allow, uh, let's say, a wholesale uh, revenge like that. This kind of laws are common to the laws of Moses and those of Hammurabi. Now, as to differences, uh, first of all, the... Uh, the Code of Hammurabi is completely civil or secular. After that little sculpture at the top where he and the sun god, sun god are uh, in communication, everything in this law code is secular. The laws of Hammurabi. In the law code of Moses, God is frequently mentioned, and the reason that every point for obeying the laws is that this is what God has commanded. And to violate it is not merely a... Um, a crime or a civil wrong, but it is a sin against God. So the laws of Moses are religiously oriented all the way through. This is the whole nature of the, of the structure. Whereas those of Hammurabi are basically secular, sort of thing we're getting used to in the United States. Secular. Whereas God is regarded as sort of off limits. That's Hammurabi. Now, uh, there was a difference in the culture. The, the people of ancient Babylon um, irrigated their land with water from the Euphrates and Tigris rivers, and they lived in cities. And uh, the Hebrews in Palestine after the time of Moses uh, were farmers and were far more backward culturally than the Babylonians. They were far ahead of them morally and ethically, but uh, culturally far behind them. So there is some difference in this way. 276, this I think we have already dealt with. 277, the moral conception of the laws of Hammurabi and those of Moses. If you had lived at about that time in the world's history, uh, Mr. Thompson, which would you rather have lived under, the laws of Moses or the laws of Hammurabi? The laws of Moses. They are more humane. Bodily mutilation was common in the laws of Hammurabi. This doesn't cut the doctor's right hand off, for example. Except for one or two very flagrant offenses, this was unknown in the laws of Moses. Bodily mutilation is a penalty. 
And uh, the laws of Hammurabi stress property rights, and the laws of Moses stress personal or human rights. Now, this is a distinction that you have to be very careful with, not to overplay it, because after all, property rights are human rights. There's no such thing as a property right unless it's the right of some person, and he is a human being. One of your rights is not only to be a human, but to, let's say, own a car, if you got it honestly, or to own your private property. So the distinction made by present-day leftists between property rights and human rights is a misleading and artificial distinction. There's no such thing as property rights that are not human rights. Some people may claim unjust property rights, but property rights as such are a part of human rights or to own your private property. So the distinction made by present-day leftists between property rights and human rights is a misleading and artificial distinction. There's no such thing as property rights that are not human rights. Some people may claim unjust property rights, but property rights as such are a part of human rights. You have the right as a human being in the image of God to earn, a, to earn and own a legitimate share of this world's good. However, there's a difference of emphasis. The uh, law of Hammurabi much more strongly stresses um, the evil of offenses against property and the law of Moses, the evil of attacks on persons. And so there is a difference of emphasis in this way. And uh, the Babylonian code is completely lacking in the concept of love for God and man, which you find prominent in the laws of Moses. If we should love the Lord our God and our neighbor as ourselves, you can read Hammurabi's code till you know it by heart, and you won't find this idea. Love for God and love for your neighbor? Moses, yes. Hammurabi, no. And it's not in there. All right, any more on Hammurabi and other law codes before we go on from this? Uh, we're still behind Mr. Brown. Mm-hmm. All right, we'll go back to that. Yeah, how did it come that the code of Hammurabi was discovered at Susa when Hammurabi was a Babylonian king? Susa is, uh, was the capital of the ancient kingdom of Elam, E-L-A-M. And uh, this is today part of Iran. Susa, this appears in the Bible as Shushan. This is where the book of Esther is centered, in the Old Testament. Remember Esther and her cousin, Mordecai, Mordecai? Shushan in the Bible, Susa in the Greek historians. Capital of Elam. Today, part of Iran or Persia. Now, an Elamite king had made war against Babylon, and he licked them and conquered them and uh, defeated them thoroughly and took what he pleased and went home again. And among other things, he, as a trophy, he took this, uh, this Babylonian uh, pillar with this law code on it. And that's how come it was found uh, by modern discovery so far from where it started. It had been bombarded or liberated by an Elamite conqueror and taken to his capital from where it came from. And there's no doubt about it, it belonged in Babylon, the language on it and the writing and everything belonged there, and Elam was simply where it had been lifted and taken to. All right? Now, anybody else got one? All right. Um, 278, the land... Oh, wait, I was going to read the two or three of these laws of Hammurabi. Who's got a book on Hammurabi? All right.
for Benson. Now, there's 242 laws that can be read. And uh, this book doesn't even give them all. It gives some. And uh, take a look at some of these. Uh, some of them marked in here. If a citizen has stolen an ox or a sheep or an ass or a pig or a boat, if it be the property of the temple or of the crown, he shall give thirtyfold. If it is the property of a vassal, he shall restore tenfold. Whereas if the thief has nothing to give, he shall die. The code of Hammurabi distinguishes classes of people, and the penalty varies according as he a noble, as he a common, as he a slave. The code of Moses, in general, treats all people alike. If the citizen steals the child of a citizen, he shall die. It's only for kidnapping. If a citizen has committed a robbery in his court, that man shall die. If a citizen has given another citizen silver or gold or anything whatsoever for safe custody in the presence of witnesses, and he denies it, they shall convict that citizen, and in spite of his denial, he shall restore it twofold. If a citizen has handed over anything of his whatsoever for safe custody, and if the place where it is deposited is entered either by breaking in or by climbing a ladder, and his property and that of the owner of the house is lost, the householder who has been negligent shall make restitution of what was given him for safe custody and was lost, and shall compensate the owner. The householder shall further search for what was lost and recover it from the thief. Sounds easy. If the wife of a citizen is taken cohabiting with another male, they shall both be bound and cast into the river. If the husband of the wife reprieves his wife, he's going to forgive her, then the king may reprieve his servant, the man involved in the case. If a citizen has taken a wife, an intermittent fever attacks her. That's malaria. Very common in the lower cities down. And if he plans to take another wife, he may do so. If your wife got married, you can take an extra wife. Get a replacement. He may not forsake his wife who is attacked by the intermittent fever, but she shall dwell in a house which he has prepared, and he shall support her for life. This is a bit of a financial dragon, so you know. Um, if a son has struck his father, they shall cut off his hand. If a citizen has destroyed the eye of another of citizen status, they shall destroy his eye. If he has broken the bone of a citizen, his bone they shall break. If he has destroyed the eye or broken the bone of a vassal, that's a slave, he shall pay one mina of silver. If he has destroyed the eye of a slave of a citizen or broken the bone of a serf, he shall pay half of his market value. If the citizen has knocked out the tooth of one of equal status, they shall knock out his tooth. If he has knocked out the tooth of a vassal, he shall pay a third of a mina of silver. If the citizen has struck the cheek of his superior, he shall receive in counsel sixty strokes with a thong. If one of citizen status has struck the cheek of his equal, he shall pay one mina of silver. If a vassal has struck the cheek of a fellow vassal, he shall pay ten shekels of silver. If a serf or a citizen has struck the cheek of one citizen of one of citizen status, they shall cut off his ear. If a citizen has struck a citizen in a quarrel and has inflicted on him a wound, that citizen shall swear I struck him unwittingly and shall pay the doctor. 
If he has died as a consequence of his attack, he shall swear. If he was a citizen stock, he shall pay half a mina of silver. You get the idea from this that the rich get off better than the poor? Mostly can get off by a money payment. Well, those are just samples of the various laws of Hammurabi. Now then, 278, <clears throat> the land of Canaan. At one time, this was used to mean all uh, Western Syria, including the Damascus and right down the coast here. Well, later, <clears throat> this became narrowed down to what we call Palestine today, uh, which would include present-day Israel and Jordan. What is the language of Canaan? Miss Sterrett, what's meant by this, 279? Yeah, it's the same as Hebrew. Well, it really, really is. Abraham originally was presumably not a speaker of the Hebrew language, both Aramean or Aramaic or Syrian. And the patriarchs picked up Hebrew after they got into Palestine. This was the language of Canaan. Strange that they used it for many centuries and then abandoned it again in favor of Aramaic late in the Old Testament period. But the language of Canaan, a West Semitic dialect, uh, similar to Phoenician, similar to Moabite, and uh, really uh, the language of the Canaanites. All right, the name Palestine. Where do we get this from? Philistia. This is the one word in the English language that comes from the ancient Philistines. Remember, Goliath was a Philistine, or at least he was on their side. Samson fought against the Philistines, a great hero of faith. Yeah, this is... Well, it's an interesting question, and I'm not sure we can say for absolutely, but the commonest belief about this today is that the Philistines came from the island of Crete. And that they were, a, uh, they were being pushed from the rear by tribes from the Greek mainland. And it is an overflow, therefore, of the early pre-Greek Aegean civilization. And um, they uh, <clears throat> tried to settle in northern Egypt, along the coast and delta of Egypt, and the Egyptians said, no, so move on, and pushed them out. And then they moved up the coast and settled along the coast of Canaan. And there were a few, just a few, a little advanced guard of Philistines there in the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had some dealings with these people. But the big migration of the Philistines came after the Israelite conquest of the country and after the time of Joshua. They are also the only people in the Holy Land in Old Testament times that came from overseas. Everybody else in there, including the Israelites and everybody else that lived there, came from overland someplace. But the Philistines came from overseas. And of all the people in the Holy Land, they had the least the honest title to a square foot of that territory because they came after the occupation of it by Israel and after God had given this to the Israelites for their inheritance. They were a very pesky people. The Philistines were um, warlike. They used to start um, wars in springtime just to relieve the monotony of the long winter. Same way they have bullfights in Spain in springtime, you know. Everything is so dull and monotonous. Let's zip it up a little bit and start a war. Old Testament speaks of springtime, time when kings go out to battle. Some people get killed in these wars, but uh, you say they got the monotony relieved. And <laughs> these are the Philistines, and they gave the Israelites a bad time for a couple, three hundred years. Through the, uh, the period of the judges and down into the 
beginning of the kingdom period until finally under Saul and David they were really effectively conquered and seemed to have been assimilated. After that, you find no mention in the New Testament of any remains of the Philistines as a separate people. So their, their headquarters was the southwest corner of Palestine, the Gaza Strip. Gaza was still had the same name. This was one of the places where Samson used to put on his uh, heroic but somewhat corny exploits. <laughs> All right. Um, now this this word Palestine is really Philistia. It's a different spelling of Philistia. This is one word we have from the language of these people. Uh, 281, the condition of the Canaanites, religiously speaking, at the time of the Israelite conquest, at the time of Moses and Joshua. Uh, what does, uh, Mr. Beatty, what does Unger think about the uh, religious and moral condition of the Canaanites? He thinks they were pretty, pretty low. Now let me say, you could sum this up, they were so low that uh, they could hardly get any lower. A person's religion ought to be the best thing about him. What good is your religion if it doesn't make you a better person? And even some pagan faiths make uh, do something for their people. A pagan faith like Buddhism, for instance, has a moral code that teaches people they shouldn't kill and shouldn't steal. And you can't say that it's just simply bad. It isn't Christianity, but there's, there's elements of good in it. But the Canaanites were so bad that their religion was the worst thing about them. This only dragged them down. They'd have been a better bunch if they'd all have been atheists. Their religion was the worst thing about them, not the best, and it dragged them down. And there's a whole chapter now coming up a little later here about the Canaanite religious cults and what they were like. And I hope you've got a strong stomach because it isn't very nice, but um, it's truth and it has to be faced. <clears throat> now, morally degenerate, and religiously corrupt. Among religions of the ancient world, this is at the bottom of the scale. The Greeks and the Romans, both of them with a false religious system, but way above the Canaanites in the scale of religious and moral value. Now, Andrew says, this gave Israel an opportunity to bear witness and the danger of compromise with the religious and moral corruptions of the Canaanites. It takes character and spiritual conviction to resist temptation. And the Israelites didn't always have it. How much of the promised land was conquered while Moses was still living? This is something that's rather obvious, but not everybody knows the answer to this. Well, uh, how much was it? Uh, while Moses was living, they conquered all apart east of the Jordan River. And then Moses died on Mount Nebo on the east side. After that, they mourned Moses 30 days. Standard. They mourned President Kennedy when he was assassinated 30 days. And um, then, under the leadership of Joshua, they crossed the Jordan and conquered the west part uh, of the Promised Land. But all of the east part, which today would be the Kingdom of Jordan, was conquered by Israel during the lifetime of Moses. They conquered Og, king of Bashan. He's the fellow that had the bedstead nine cubits long, iron bedstead nine cubits, which would be 14 feet and some inches. That's the belly of a bedstead. Super king size. It doesn't say Og was 14 feet tall, but he had a 
14-foot bedstead. And the Israelites liberated dogs from this world and took the bedstead. Now, this was on the east side of the Jordan. They also conquered Sihon, and they conquered the, uh, the Moabites under Balak, who uh, got to Balaam to try to put a curse on Israel, and then they crossed the Jordan under Joshua. Now, the book of Judges does not... No, it doesn't. Uh, it does not give a detailed account of the Israelite conquest. It gives uh, selected parts, and uh, the rest of it is left. This is 285, and we'll stop there for the day.